0: Welcome to Founders Uncut, the podcast that goes beyond the romanticized founder journey to discover the moments of vulnerability and doubt that even the most successful founders face. I'm Maria Palma, General Partner at Kindred Capital. Here with me today is Damian Kimmelman, the co-founder of Battelle, Roe, Founders Pledge and Doodill. But those are just the headlines. Let's get the real story on Founders Uncut. So there was a situation where Damien was in a company and there was really two directions forward for the strategy of the company, and they had to make a decision about which one to go with. So can you tell us a little bit more about that, Damien, and and how that was as a co-founder?
1: Absolutely. So in one of my first companies, we raised a significant amount of money, I think a little too early and before we had product market fit. And I think it was clear that we had multiple different customers, multiple different successful paths, but we were trying to spray and pray and trying to be everything to everyone. And I took a step back and realized that the correct path forward was to essentially deprecate our website and be an API-only business which at the time, this is sort of 2014, was fairly controversial, especially considering our API wasn't (laughs) the strongest part of our business and essentially fire 60% of our customers. I think where I went wrong wasn't the decision or figuring out which way to go. I was very ineffective in how I went about actioning that decision. I was a very young founder, and like a lot of very young founders, I think I tended to seek consensus. And in some of those decisions where you know in your heart you need to sever an appendage or do something that's not going to be fun, I think I put too much stock in having consensus. Within the company rather than having expediency and delivering on a clear vision.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of founders find themselves in that situation, right? Because you want to create this great culture and keep everyone happy, but sometimes there are right decisions for the company that are not maybe popular, right? But they might be the correct strategy. And how you deploy those is certainly a challenge. As you think about some of the broader decision making, it's funny. I had a conversation with another VC who said one of the things they look for in like founder traits, even though it's kind of hard to really boil it down, is making tough decisions quickly. And you're often, I think, rewarded in startups for almost making the wrong decision or the right decision, but as long as you make it quickly and action it as opposed to spending too much time deciding which decision to make, do you have a sense of is there a right decision? And does it matter the speed with which you get to that decision?
1: I think the speed of decision making is paramount but there's often not a right or wrong decision. Most decisions are daisy-chained, so it's very hard to pick if it was a right or wrong decision. I think when building companies, you realize that there are multiple right answers, and just because they might be right, they might not be consistent with your other decisions. I think the goal of a company is really to make clear and consistent decisions, even if their outcomes are suboptimal or their outcomes lead to failure. And that's kind of weird to think about, but too often people find it difficult to unpick good decisions that have bad outcomes and bad decisions that have good outcomes. I think that consistency in an organization is paramount and people put too much stock in making perfect decisions rather than more stock in making very, very clear and consistent decisions. Because clear and consistent decisions are things that the rest of the team can model. Consistent with the culture, consistent with process of making decisions. Things are highly, highly complex and multivariate. Um, And most people... Think about things in very binary terms. Nothing is binary in the startup. And that's really, really challenging, right? Because um, you can't understand the consequences of consequences and you can't model everything out perfectly because there are a lot of people involved.
0: Yeah, you kind of make the future whatever that is, right? There's no.
1: (laughs) But if you look at really great decision makers, a lot of the times, they are really highly, highly consistent. And what that provides is sort of a platform for others in the organization to be aligned and to make similar decisions. And that similar decision-making over time prevails. So you might not optimize for the local maxima, but you'll optimize over time because it will be consistent with a set of strategies.
0: Yeah, and then people also know what to expect from you, right? And you and I have talked before about kind of decision frameworks, right? Because there are so many decisions to make in a startup. So how do you think about making decisions and how do you use different frameworks to come to the right decision?
1: I think that's an awesome question. The way that I look at things is in sort of information theory lens. Best mental models that I like to employ is something called The map is not the territory. What it states is, if you had a map of the world and it had perfect fidelity, what would that map be useful for? Nothing. Because every tree would be the same size. That would be reality. And so subjectivity is highly, highly useful. And you should lean into subjectivity. If you look at, in education, every field of study is some sort of abstraction of another field of study, right? And scientists constantly pick at each other. You know, there's a really funny comic. Oh, no, that's just applied, you know, biology. Oh, no, that's just applied physics. Whatever it may be. Each field of study is just a language. It's a set of terms or naming conventions trying to describe reality at a certain vantage point. And I like to think of the world in a very similar way. You have lots of different actors who have lots of different vantage points, right? Some built billion dollar businesses but are probably not too clued in to, you know, the ground level mechanics of, of your industry at this time. But if you look at Everybody's views in sort of 3D space. There's a strong argument to seek heterodox opinions and to try and understand what the spectrum of opinions are so you can figure out where to locate your decision.
0: Interesting. Yeah. For those of us with worse vocabulary than you, heterodox is different non conforming opinions. But that's really interesting because you're saying basically you get a whole spectrum of opinions, even if they seem like some of them might be way out of left field, because it helps you actually use subjectivity to get to the right one.
1: Yes. Everybody's looking at something at a different vantage point, And you can often tell what that vantage point is by the types of words that they actually use around describing things.
0: Yeah, it's actually so interesting, especially when you think about this from like a diversity and inclusion perspective, right? This is why you get different perspectives. And there's this study that I think it was Microsoft who did where they took people, a lot of different backgrounds, and they took an IQ test. And then halfway through the IQ test, they split them. And then they split them by how you were doing on the IQ test. And then for the second half of the IQ test, the people who on average had higher IQ, but were more similar actually performed worse than people who on average had lower IQ, but had diverse backgrounds and no one knows exactly why, but the theory is that they all solve problems a similar way and had similar training and similar backgrounds. And I think it's actually very interesting to even go back to this like language point, right? At the end of the day, communication is a huge piece of startups and culture, but we don't actually think about how we communicate at that level in many moments.
1: Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think what it says to me is two things. One I default to I am probably wrong. And so I try to be empathetic and I try and surround myself with people who are genuinely kind because I think you (laughs) realize that um, you're more often wrong than right, but you can be less wrong.
0: How do you know when you get these different opinions, right? How do you know, like, it'll challenge you a different way, but how do you know when to listen to them? And how do you know when to listen to your gut and say, you know what, actually, it's not these things I'm hearing, it's something
1: else? I think that's a function of how have you framed the problem. And when you really focus on the framing of the problem, you can find out who will be best to answer that effectively.
0: Yeah, super interesting. As you think about shared language, let's also talk about shared culture, right? Because whether it's, you know, your life partner that you share, or if you have kids, or if you are in a startup, there's this kind of shared history that happens with people when you spend a lot of time with them. And so creating the right type of shared culture as you're growing a startup can be one of the most incredible experiences that you create that bonds people, or it can be a horrible experience for everyone. You've founded also businesses in regulated spaces like financial services. You know, how do you think about marrying things that don't always go together, like compliance and people who have like bank background versus startup DNA? And how how do you think about bringing very different backgrounds and perspectives together, but creating a shared culture?
1: I made a lot of mistakes. And I think all of the sort of V1 or first and second cohorts of UK reg tech and fintech businesses had this challenge where you essentially had two pools of applicants. One pool of applicants were from you know, financial institutions. Another pool of applicants were from startups. <laughs> and they often really, really didn't, like a, there was a clash of cultures amongst the two of them because the ones in banks and hedge funds really didn't think about the cost of execution what I mean by that is they would argue like hell about certain trades. But once they had come to some sort of consensus or agreement, then executing on that trade was very, very simple. It was pressing a button. In a bank, it was somewhat similar. All of the bank's tools had already been built, so there was time to really, really hash out and you know argue and focus on Prioritizing perfect decisions rather than better decisions. In startups, it was quite the opposite. Startups realize that once you make the decision, what you do with that decision is the hard part.
0: Yeah, lots of people have great ideas, but executing them is actually much more challenging than it may seem from the outside.
1: Yeah, and you're dealing with a lot of people. And this sort of clash of cultures. I think sort of um, came together in places like compliance, where those who had a traditional finance backgrounds would say, "Oh no, you're going to make us go to jail!" Like, which was like, when, when's the last person in finance that's gone to jail?" Truthfully, but that's besides the point. Yeah, they'd be overly dramatic about certain problems, but they'd focus on perfect decisions. And so they would oftentimes create forms that had, you know, thirty or forty input fields. <laughs> like nobody wants to fill that form out.
0: Do you think in the end having all those different opinions though then creates a better outcome? Because at some point someone's pushing back on that and saying, What?
1: No. I think unless you have a good framework for making decisions, it really creates massive inertia in every organization, unless you have some sort of way of triage, So just very quickly in the ones from startups would say the exact opposite. You know, oh, let's do this two input form. It's beautiful. You know, look at how accessible it is, blah, blah, blah. And neither of them were right. Like both of them were like very wrong in a lot of different ways.
0: So then it's basically about either hiring the right people or bringing together the right type of culture that finds some sort of not perfect, as you said, but good enough decision that you can actually execute.
1: I think if you catch it early on, you can coordinate decisions well. And so you can get people to triage decisions because there are times when that fintech or that institutional knowledge is very right. And there are times when that startup Decision-making is very right, but it's all about being able to triage these decisions quickly so that you don't get sort of cultural uh, clashes and people understand and respect the value of each other because when they don't, then you start fighting yourself rather than fighting externalities, which is the name of the game.
0: That makes sense. Um, So as you've been on across multiple company building journeys now, like what actually matters in the company building process and what doesn't
1: matter? Long-term value creation. I think most people don't really think about that. Most people think about the funding game that they're playing. Most people think about the leaderboard.
0: At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how many rounds you raise and, and how much equity you have in it unless that business at the end of the day is worth something valuable to somebody um, or not.
1: It's compound growth. And um, the largest businesses have done it. And one of the things that I you know, really like to think about is when you look at some of these big businesses that went through some pretty tough decisions. I'll give you an example. When Steve Jobs came back to... Apple, right? What did he do? He changed the board. He reduced the number of items that Apple was producing. He focused on great unit economics and distribution with Tim Cook. You could have picked that sort of strategy book out of McKinsey pretty much. The vast majority of great leadership in terms of crisis is actually very, very straightforward and very, very simple. And there's reason for that, and it's because organizations are complex. And The more you're able to have a simple, clear vision that everybody can be a part of, the higher the success rate can be.
0: Yeah. And I think communicating that vision consistently, right? Because as a founder, it's so clear in your head, but you just have to communicate it 10 times as much as you think you should. What do you think is misunderstood about the founder journey?
1: These days, not that much. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think there are a lot of resources these days. There are probably a lot of things that are misunderstood. Probably the biggest one is um, how complex people are and dealing with people At scale, I mean, look at all these case studies like Blockbuster, and everybody's like, "Oh, if I was in Blockbuster's shoes, I would have seen Netflix. I would have done." And if you actually delve, you know, beyond the, the superficial, you realize that organizations have layers of incentives, layers of complexities, and in a blockbuster. That was probably not a great decision at the time.
0: To your point, it's hard to shift, right? Like once you have people who have jobs that they're delivering and emotions around it and you're you're moving a ship in a whole direction, like at some point you're moving an oil tanker and you're not moving a bicycle anymore. And so restarting that is very hard. And against that backdrop, do you think there are certain traits that make a great founder or do you think that founders come in all different traits and shapes and sizes?
1: I think the best founders know their scent, they know their flavor, and I think that they know the culture that they're building and they stick to it. I think weak founders try and go with what's au fait and what's the moment, and you see weak founders being too fad-friendly or too focused on what's the coolest thing at the time rather than really, really honing in what they're unbelievably excellent at and continuing to refine that and strip away the messy parts.
0: Yeah. And you've been founding multiple companies now, you know, will you ever do anything besides found a company or you're just going to keep founding them? And and why do you keep founding companies, even though it is a very complex thing to navigate?
1: I think there there are a number of reasons why I've co-founded a number of companies. I think a simple answer is this is over a 20-year period. Uh, three businesses over 15 years. Yeah, I now have a lot of gray hair, so I'm not that young. I guess the more interesting answer is I've always been fascinated with impact, true impact. And when you delve into the study of what has and has and does have impact, I think you realize that early interventions or solving the problem upstream Always has far greater returns, right? Like you fix a problem before it becomes a problem, has unbelievable returns. But the problem is people don't like solving problems upstream. Solving upstream problems means things like working out, taking vitamins. People hate vitamins. They love painkillers, And so some of my pursuits haven't hit the mark at being that perfect mix of high, high impact painkillers because that's hard. Just a bit about the business that I'm doing right now, I started a company called Battelle. We teach parents how to put children to bed in under five minutes within a week, within two weeks to sleep throughout the night, guaranteed.
0: Which is not, I can tell you as a mother of one and expecting a second, that is not an easy thing to do.
1: (laughs) No. And one of the reasons why I wanted to build this company was I read a paper by James Heckman, he's a Nobel economist, who stated that interventions in early childhood statistically have a far, far greater return on investment than higher education due to their compounding nature. Well, when you unpack early childhood education, you realize that sleep is absolutely foundational to all of those things, all, all of those foundations in, in early childhood.
0: Yeah, everything you're learning and developing and everything you from safety and emotions to actual intelligence is very correlated to sleep. It's a really good point.
1: Precisely. And so if you can solve sleep, this is a beautiful intervention that's at the intersection of high, high pain, high, high impact.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think your ability to drive impact for solving sleep, quite frankly, for parents and children, is really massively important. So I hope you scale this significantly quickly so that lots of people get impact. So as you mentioned, there's a lot of great resources for founders out there on the founding journey or anything else. What is your recommendation for anyone to read in terms of books or resources out there?
1: I think two of my favorite books are a book called Decoding Reality by Black Code It's on quantum information theory and another book called The Science of Can and Can't. It's by Chiara Marletto. And they're both about quantum physics, quantum information theory, but they are mind-blowing books that actually have relevance to absolutely everything that you do in a surprising way. There are very few Books that I would read and read and read again, and I think, especially yeah, Flaco, he's hilarious. And so, this is not some like crazy long drawn out book that is too intellectual. It's fun,
0: amazing. Okay, well, we will include those in the show notes, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. If you want more stories like this, go to www.kindredcapital forward slash founders uncut and as always if you're a founder and the journey is hard you're not alone and you're not doing anything wrong being a founder is just hard even the most successful founders have moments of fear vulnerability and doubt that happen every day and don't make the headlines so thanks for joining us today and if damien's story resonated with you join us again on founders uncut